Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. And by Doohop. Doohop is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn more at doohop.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Scott McCartney, hoping everyone had a great, safe, and meaningful Memorial Day. I also hope everyone's travels went well as we officially kick off the busy summer season. A summer season that will test airlines and air traffic control and possibly test the patience of both travelers and politicians in Washington. Happy Memorial Day week, Ben Baldanza. Thank you, Scott. Hope you had a wonderful holiday too. I'm eager to get going because this week you get to interview Barry Biffle, the CEO of Frontier Airlines. This is the second week of Old Home Week for me. On last week's podcast, we had our interview together with Ted Christie, who worked for me at Spirit. This week, you get to talk to Barry, who also worked for me at Spirit and at U.S. Airways. Barry and Ted are both really smart executives who have done a great job for their respective airlines now, and a lot of the credit that I get for Spirit is owed to those two people. We're fortunate to have them both on the podcast back-to-back. Ben, I grabbed Barry on the floor of the Aviation Festival Americas meeting in Miami Beach, and we had a terrific talk. He addressed the current political issue in Washington of compensating travelers for airline-caused delays and cancellations with a very interesting solution, I thought. Something I would love to see, and I think most travelers would love to see, and I'll be curious to get your reaction to it. But first, speaking of solutions, we thought it might be fun this week if you put some of the problems you test your George Mason University students with to me. Let's see if I could pass Professor Baldanza's class and see if our listeners could pass the course as well. I'll confess, I'm pretty nervous about this, Ben. Don't run me off the podcast if I flunk, but I'm here to learn, just like all of our listeners. So, Professor, let's have some fun. Well, I thought this would be fun. So to make it fair, what I did is I got copies of both the midterm and final exams that my students took this spring in the class. So I would sure it would be, you know, current and real. It's not like I'm making something up too simple or too hard. These are actual questions asked to the students. So the first student, McCartney, is explain the concept of a pricing fence and why such fences are used. Ooh, you could have started with an easy one, Ben. I, that's a new term to me. A pricing fence um, probably refers to uh, some kind of uh, structural advantage an airline has uh, where others others can't match prices? 
Well, that's not a bad guess, but it's not exactly right. A pricing fence is a rule in a price that limits when it can be used. Ah. So, for example, you might only be able to buy a certain fare 14 days before the flight departs. That would be called an AP14 pricing fence because it limits that price from being sold in the last 14 days. And the idea of fences is to try to estimate customers' price elasticity and be able to charge for low fares to some people, but make people who buy closer to departure pay higher fares. That's the old wallet biopsy. I guess Saturday night stays would fall into the same category and many other, many other tricks airlines had to try and uh, uh, make sure that business customers who were willing to pay more as you say, uh, would would pay more and the low fares would be restricted to leisure customers and businesses uh, wouldn't have access to them. It's interesting. Most of the fences are gone, right? Um, that's uh, the, those, those days when airlines could fence off high prices or low prices, um, that uh, that's really gone. I think there are a lot of leisure travelers and business travelers are paying the exact same fare uh, to to uh, go where they want to go, when they want to go. I think you're right, Scott. The biggest fence that was used for decades but went away a while ago was the Saturday Night Stay fence. Airlines used to ask or used to require that you stay over on a Saturday night to get a real cheap fare. And their reasoning was pretty simple. If you're spending the weekend, you're probably not going on a business trip. And if you're not going on a business trip, you're probably paying for the ticket yourself. So you're probably gonna be very sensitive to price. But if you're leaving Monday and coming back Wednesday and not staying on a Saturday night, we're going to bet your business is paying, so we're going to make you charge up. But that went away a long time ago. And you're right, even the advanced purchase fences and some others have largely gone away, but you still see them now and then. Yeah, it, it does remind me of uh, <laughs> the really funny uh, sort of comic relief thing that used to run around the industry where you would walk into the hardware store and say, I'd like to buy a gallon of paint. And the hardware store clerk would say, well, when do you want to paint? And and you could work a whole routine with this. What, well, the blue paint is more expensive than the green paint. And uh, if you paint on Friday, that's more expensive than if you paint on Saturday. Uh, and you get into if, you know, it, the, the idea was if airlines sold paint uh, and um, uh, all those crazy rules, I, I think the I think the industry is better off without them. And I know travelers are better off without them. But it's it has been a fascinating transformation to see all those rules disappear and pricing change so dramatically in the last, um, what, 20 years or so um, of, of air travel. That's right. Well, let's go to number two. Why might a schedule planner 
choose to keep operating a flight that has a negative operating profit according to the company's flight profitability report? Uh, I think there could be several reasons. Um, the, the flight might be profitable if you add in cargo. Uh, the flight might be necessary because the return of, of that trip is, say, it's an outbound from a, from a hub. The return or the next flight um, might be very profitable. Uh, and so the, the round trip would be uh, ultimately profitable or just the need to get that airplane uh, somewhere it needs to be. It might be that you need to get the airplane for overnight maintenance at a at a particular base. Um, I think there could be lots of reasons, and the same with with the crew of of why you would need to uh, operate that flight, even though uh, it's going to be negative. Well, you're clearly more an operating guy than a pricing guy. <laughs> yeah. You nailed this one, Scott. <laughs> That's right. There are a number of reasons. Every one you said, plus it could just be a brand new flight and the team is mm-hmm. waiting for it to spool up. Mm-hmm. It could use a slot that right now you have no better use for that slot. But if you stop the flight, you lose the slot. It could be because you've made a political commitment to fly the flight. There could be lots of reasons for it. In the long term, it's not in any airline's interest to fly flights that lose money. But in any given month or season, all the reasons we talked about and probably a dozen more is why airlines keep some of these flights in the system. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Well, and you can see from these first two that I don't normally ask my students simple yes-no questions or tell me what this means questions. I like them to have to think about things a bit. As a teacher myself, I admire that greatly. I also wonder, you must spend hours and hours grading <laughs> grading these tests. So the last one is one you can't really fail, but based on how you answer it, determines your grade for this one, okay? Okay. You choose to accept an offer to work at a large airline. They offer you three potential roles. You can be a pricing analyst and manage prices for a group of routes and coordinate well with the revenue management team. You can go into the financial planning and analysis team to manage the company's flight profitability system and provide useful analysis to help other departments make good decisions. Or you can be an airport operations analyst. You'll work with the operations team to learn to help airports run more efficiently and provide them the information they need about their airports. Which role do you take? And most importantly, why do you take that role? Well, uh, the, the why is easy. Based on the answers to my first two questions, I'm definitely taking either number two or number three. I, I think the, the financial analysis job uh, would be completely fascinating and would would encompass so many different aspects 
of uh, the airline business. Um, and, and that's what's always fascinated me, right? It's so complicated. There are so many different moving parts to it. And when you get into financial analysis of uh, flights and schedules, that encompasses so much. But I'm also completely fascinated with airport operations. I, I'm the guy who loves the dysfunctional airport. I have a daughter who lives in Los Angeles. It makes fun of me that um, I love LAX because when I was a reporter, it was a reporter's theme park. There were always great stories to do there. Um, but I think actually moving people, moving airplanes, uh, scheduling gate utilization, um, runways as a, as a private pilot myself, um, living and working and dealing with airport complexity um, would also be uh, completely fascinating and fulfilling for me. That would earn 100%, Scott. Great yeah. job on this. And to be fair, had you actually taken the class, you would have known that pricing fence one. Sure. Because when we talk about pricing, we talk about the tools that pricers use to make fares sometimes available and sometimes not available. So you'd have been exposed to that before you saw that question. Assuming I was paying attention. Great job, Ben. Uh, I think it's it's fascinating what you do with students. Um, I really do wish I could take the class. Uh, and, uh, and I really commend you for all the time and effort you put into that. Uh, it's a great opportunity for students. And, uh, and I'm sure a lot of these students ha end up with careers at airlines and the industry benefits from all you're teaching them. Well, one of the things I'm most proud of, in fact, probably the thing I am most proud of in teaching this class is that over 20 of my students since I started teaching now do work in the airline business because they go take an interview, they know the lingo, they were interested enough to take a class on airlines. If I can tell you one funny story, I had a student back in 2018 who interviewed for a job in revenue management at United. And she came back to me and I said, how did the interview go? And she said, I think it went great. I have to tell you, they asked me if I had any questions. And I told them, I said, I took a class where the professor taught me about the terms displacement, dilution, and spoilage. Do you guys really measure all that stuff? <laughs> and she said the interviewer looked at her, dropped his pen, and said, can you start tomorrow? <laughs> That's fabulous. <laughs> That's really great. All right. Well, here's an answer I am sure about, Ben. Our sponsors. Airlines Confidential wouldn't exist without the support of our sponsors. We want to thank our sponsor, Doohop, which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Doohop is a travel technology provider enabling airlines to expand their networks, to offer more connectivity, to create additional partnerships, and to focus on improving the customer experience with more offers, services, and travel options. Airlines benefit from generating additional revenue, from lower costs, and from maintaining full customer ownership. Plus, in the event of travel disruptions, 
Duhop works with airlines and offers assistance in helping passengers reach their final destination. Visit dohop.com. That's D-O-H-O-P.com. And we want to thank Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is the only geared propulsion system delivering industry-leading sustainability and dependable world-class operating costs. With up to 20% less fuel and CO2 emissions, the GTF engine has revolutionized commercial aviation and set the foundation for more sustainable aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Okay, Professor McCartney, I'm eager to hear your conversation with Barry Biffle. Take it away. Barry Biffle, the CEO of Frontier Airlines, is joining us now. Thrilled to talk to you, Barry. It's a really interesting time in, in the business. Um, I'm curious what you're seeing for summer. We've, we've talked a lot on the podcast about uh, summer delays, uh, uh, the FAA uh, forcing airlines to, to uh, curb flight schedules in New York and Washington, the demand for summer travel. What's Frontier seeing? So we're seeing robust demand for summer. I mean, we, we've continued to to see this kind of transformation of the consumer going, as you and I talked about earlier today. You know, going from buying things from Home Home Depot to redo their bathroom to to now they're out tra- out traveling, and so yeah. we're seeing that rotation alive and well. And I think this is going to be the strongest we've seen post pandemic this summer. And and with that rotation, there's kind of a fascinating thing going on economically where I think in in the past when there was economic slowdown or recession, airlines felt it early. Um, uh, Companies reduced their travel budgets and consumers cut back, but they're not doing that now. And I'm curious if you think that's, is that a permanent change in the industry or is that just um, coming out of the pandemic? So I think there's there's a lot of factors at play, but I think most importantly is, is you have a whole lot of demand and you have constrained supply. So you don't have industry capacity back to its 2019 levels uh, completely. And actually, you got to account for the fact that the economy is even bigger. Yeah. I mean, so we, we all focus on 2019, but the truth is the economy has grown uh, for the last several years. So you have a whole lot of demand and not enough supply. And so that causes the fares uh, to be more expensive than they would be if you, know, if you had expanding capacity. Um, I think the other thing that's happened... And this started happening last year. We've seen it, you know, continue. Uh, is we've already almost seen kind of the recession in air travel. And and what I mean by that is we are seeing today, two hundred thousand dollar household incomes are now eighteen percent of our customers. Really, and so yeah. that that is a significant amount because prior to the pandemic it was only ten percent. Yeah. So we literally have almost doubled our two hundred thousand household income, and every every one of the kind of demographic, you know, and income. Uh, segments has increased with us. So we're already seeing that classic trade down, if you will, that you normally see during a recession. And you see that, you know, with higher prices uh, in, in anything you buy. So I don't know that we're, we're actually going to see the same type of recession that people are ever expecting or have seen in the past uh, as it relates to air travel. I just think, you know, we, we could sidestep it because of all the other phenomena that, that's happened over the last three years. Uh-huh. Do you, do you buy into the theory that Travel has now become a more important element in people's lives, and and 
and de- airline demand is going to be more resilient in the future. Well, I, I think I think look, I think we're all reminded. I mean, the conference that we're at today that I'm speaking to you at, um, I think it you're reminded that you can have just three to five minute conversations with people and it's worth an hour on the phone. Yeah. And so I think we're reminded from a business perspective, how important travel is. And so I think, I think people are getting back to that. And from a personal connection, it's great to see your friends. Yeah. And so it's great to see your family. And, and because we were starved for so long, yeah. I think that, uh, that people are valuing that more now. And uh-huh. so I think, you know, we're, we're emotional creatures. And I think that uh, you're going to continue to see that boom uh, continue to go, not just to see yeah. friends and family, but to, to, you know, how many experiences do you have left while you're in this life? Mm-hmm. And so you tend to fly places to go do those experiences. Mm-hmm. So different topic in Washington. Um, there's been some bashing of of airlines. Uh, the president and the secretary of transportation are proposing regulations that would um, not only refund passengers for canceled flights, but compensate them uh, for delays beyond just reimbursing hotel rooms or car rentals or or the costs of an airline disruption. What do you think of that? So I think that um, it's important to get customers to where they want to go. I think the reality is I don't know of an airline that cancels a flight that, that likely wasn't because of some type of safety uh, risk. Yeah. I, I worry about you know giving the wrong incentives uh, to people. Um, I think a, a very simple solution that was invented long ago that has been abandoned in the last decade is something the industry probably should look at, and, that, and, that's, and that's called FIM agreements. So sharing tickets with each other when, when one airline cancels, you know, in the old days, other, other airlines would pick up their passengers and carry them if they had seats. Right. And so there's this idea of, well, they'll reimburse them. Well, if the seats are available on someone else, we as an industry should, should pick up the slack. Yeah. And, and this was invented long ago. And so and if we'll just was, reintroduce that. It was rule 240 in the regulated days of the industry. That, that's right. So, so there's, a, there's a way to actually solve this that is very simple. That, that could be solved tomorrow. Huh. And, and, and the technology exists. So uh-huh. if we would just go back to that, I don't think we need a solution looking for a problem. I think let's just go back to what that was, and I think you'll, you'll see a lot of people. And is, you know, is the reluctance in the industry the, the pricing issue of, um, well, well, you got to buy my ticket at $2,000? Well, I, I, or? Well, I, I, think, I think it's, no, I don't, I don't think it's that they're selling that many tickets to someone, but, but the issue is that, that people wanted to protect the revenue and keep the revenue. Uh-huh. And so this was a this is part of consolidation. Um, this right. this phenomena, if you will, yeah. happened after consolidation, and these carriers just stopped sharing with other airlines because right. they thought their their networks were big enough. But the truth is, is that it's it never really works that simple. Yeah. And so rather than giving somebody you know another option on another time or day, just give them all the options. Right. And I think that if we would go back to that type of, of, of solution, I think it would be good for consumers. And I think everybody in Washington would settle down on this It'd issue. It'd be great for consumers. Uh, you know, I, I think I think travelers don't understand. Travelers end up doing it themselves, right? If, well, well, if that's you my, cancel a flight, well, where can I get a seat on somebody else? If, correct. If the correct. airlines would do that for them, it would make it a whole lot easier to travel. That's why I'm suggesting what I'm suggesting. This this already has a solution that's 30, 40 years old. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. Um, uh, I want to talk about Frontier a little bit. Um, 
the, the Dallas base that you've set up, I, I live in Dallas. I'm, I'm curious how that's going. Um, the just, just yesterday, DFW said it's moving forward on a sixth terminal with a lot of expansion plans. So how, how do you see your future in Dallas? Well, we see it very simply. I mean, we see it as the low-cost alternative uh, for people in North Texas. And uh, as you know, I'm, I'm actually from North Texas, born in yeah. Fort Worth, grew up in Cook County uh, by Gainesville. And um, so I think when you look at the Metroplex, you've, you've got, you've got D- Dallas Love Field. So you've got Southwest serving that. You've got DFW. Um, but these, are, these are tend to be higher cost options compared to the fares that we can offer. Right. And so I think that uh, it is a, a top five metro that's screaming for an opportunity uh, to have inexpensive, uneventful travel that we can provide. Excellent. Where, where do you see the best growth prospects for Frontier? Is it big cities? Is it small, medium cities? Is it international? What, what are you looking at? So it's anywhere that, that consumers are either don't have a low-cost option or they don't have enough service or both. And so uh, we tend to see that today. There's been a lot more in the bigger cities uh, that have been constrained for, for years. We've seen small to medium-sized cities in the past, but uh, right now it's larger cities and you're starting to see more international opportunities pop up. Uh-huh. Um, there's been a lot of disruption in, in Latin America. This conference is largely focused in, in, um, on South America. Has that opened up opportunity for you? So I don't know specifically, you know, a lot of that's been very intra-region. Uh, yeah, so yeah. You, you've had a lot of that reduction in capacity has been intra-Latin America. Uh-huh. There's been a little bit to the U.S. Um, but, but the truth is, is look, I think, I think our economies are growing, theirs are growing, and um, there's not as much access as there was. Uh, and so that's causing fares to rise and which are making those opportunities look more interesting to us. Uh-huh. So a lot of concern about the future of the low-cost end of the market um, if JetBlue acquires Spirit and the Justice Department, that's the basis really of the Justice Department challenging that or trying to stop that. I, I'm, I'm just curious how you see the future of, of the ultra low cost carrier industry in the U.S. because you are, you are the, the, the ULCC right now. Yeah, so look, I, I think um, we, we, we wish Spirit and, and JetBlue luck. The reality is, yes, they are they are more mid cost and, and a higher cost uh, carrier, and um, I think that uh, they'll provide an interesting uh, competitive dynamic to the big four, which is which is really necessary. But the truth is, is yes, it leaves us in in kind of the the driver's seat uh, of the ultra low cost space. We have the most expansive network in the U.S. in terms of coverage of you know, small, medium, and large cities. And I think, uh, yes, it will be very beneficial to us if, when, if and when that deal goes through. Huh. Another thing that, that has come up in the past is, um, I think Scott Kirby was sort of out front saying the ULCC cost advantage is going away because of higher pilot costs, because of higher oil, oil prices. Um, what, what's your response to all that? Well, I think the facts are the facts. And, and we had a $61 advantage uh, per passenger each way going into the pandemic. Uh, we now have a $71 cost <laughs> advantage uh, today. So I, I don't think that's very accurate. Um, I think there may be some models that he was speaking of, but it wasn't ours. Um, yeah. our, our, our cost advantage is widening, uh-huh. uh, not shrinking. And, and you're able to get pilots? Uh, that, yeah, we, we're actually well. very fortunate. We're actually in a surplus situation right now. Um, because of our growth rate as well as, as our pay rates, um, if you come to work for Frontier, you'll make as much or more as, than you make anywhere else over the next 10 years, just simply because you're going to upgrade to captain within three to four years. 
Yeah. And so when you compare that to seven to 10 years, um, it's just a much better opportunity for, for pilots. Not to mention the, the money, but then there's the lifestyle. You know, our pilots, you know, our, our average bids are in the 12 to 13 day range, not 15 to 17 days. So they have a few more days off per month because huh. they, cause the days that they do work, they're more productive. Um, our average line holder flies over six hours a day when they come to work. And so, you know, I think the industry averages in the fours. And so this is very, very beneficial uh, to them uh, from a lifestyle perspective. And, th- and then the last thing on lifestyle is that because they're, we're growing, uh, their relative seniority is that much more powerful that much sooner. So you're going to have holidays, weekends, your vacation pick in the summer off long before you will at other carriers. And then the last thing is simply uh, that, I, that I would throw in there is that uh, we have a lot of bases. And so our geographic dispersion in the United States uh, gives people pretty much the choice to live where they want to live. Yeah. And if not where they want to live, very close by and easy commutes. So oh. there's no better better place to go to work if you're a pilot. Interesting. Very interesting. So environmental, uh, you, you've made a point of saying in, uh, Frontier is a green airline, not just because the planes are painted green. But uh, I was at a, at a conference where there was a lot of discussion about this and really sort of an acknowledgement that the industry on its own is going to have a very hard time just with sustainable fuel and things like that. Very hard time getting to net zero by 2050. What's your view? Where do you think? Does there need to be sort of a Manhattan Project government-backed effort to create sustainable aviation fuel in enough supply to make a difference? Look, I think there's, I think there's a lot of things that are emerging on the technology side, and, and I think by the time you get to 2050, I think it can be done, right? We have the beginnings yeah. of many of the technology. It's not operationalized or scalable yet uh, to, to reach what you need, um, but it is, is technologically possible. I think in the near term, what people have to recognize, though, is that, that there's kind of reduce, reuse, and recycle. You know, well, in the reduce category, we get over 100 miles per gallon per seat, right? The industry average is in the 60s, Yeah. right? So if you actually care about and are excited about, you know, net zero, well, do you care about net half? Would you like to cut yours in half? Because our 321neo gets 120 miles per gallon per seat. So literally, burnt drinks half the fuel per seat of, of, and, of the big guys. And is that purely a function of seat density? You got it's, more seats on well, the it's airplane. A, it's a function of gauge. So bigger aircraft. Yeah. So a more efficient aircraft. Um, the most efficient new technology, the the Neo, mm-hmm. uh, um, whether it be the GTF or the or the um, the CFM product. And so, so you got the best, most efficient modern aircraft, highest gauge with the highest density. Then you couple that with how we fly and how we operate. And what I mean by that is I don't have, I don't have a big radome on top of the airplane for, for Wi-Fi, which can cause drag to the airplane. I don't have a lot of weight of IFE. We don't have ovens on board and all the things that you need for, to serve hot meals. And so all of that additional weight, you know, which is thousands and thousands of pounds, causes you to burn extra fuel. We also look very carefully at where and when we fly. Because we don't bank, you know, we don't have hubs, we don't have a bunch of aircraft waiting to take off, sitting there burning gas. So just how we operate, yeah. in addition to all these other things and the efficiency of the aircraft, creates the, the most efficient aircraft in the U.S. Yeah. All right, Barry, got to ask about go wild passes. Uh, how wild have people gone? People have gone pretty wild. You know, we, we introduced this, this product uh, last, last fall, uh, and the annual product uh, started in 
just this spring, but we started selling it last fall. Kind of think of it like a ski pass or an amusement park ride pass. Yeah. And um, we had the annual pass initially. We started selling it for $5.99. The retail went up to $19.99. And we sold them all along the way. Obviously, if you bought earlier, you got the best deal. And then we introduced just the summer-only pass for, for May through September. Uh, and we're selling that for $4.99. And so both of them are great values. And, and it's, been, it's been really exciting. We, we did kind of a surprise and delight. And we actually gave it to people a little earlier uh, then May 2nd, which we'd originally announced. We opened it up early in April, and we've already got lots of people flying it, and they're having having a pretty good time of their lives, I think, seeing the country and seeing the, you know, the near international. And, and is there a particular champion to go wild? Anybody who's, who's really abusing it? Well, well we, I don't know about abusing. I think, I think exploiting the opportunity is probably the best way to describe it. I think we have, we have one individual. I know he's flown, I think, close to 30 times already, uh, almost every day, sometimes one or two times a day, and he's flying all over the country. Um, and, and look, I mean, with unlimited travel um, for one low price, I mean, there's yeah. people that are truly going wild, and that hints the name. And, and so it's just like we were just talking earlier, there's a, a mother and son who are going to use this as an opportunity for, for him to see the world, and uh, they're doing it this summer. So it's, it's, it, it truly gives people the opportunity to see the world. And, and, and I think you know, I think back to when I was a kid, I only went on two or three trips yeah. ever, yeah. and only one of them by airplane. Yeah. And so you, you think about you know, how, how cheap this is at $499 just for the summer for unlimited travel. I mean, you could see a lifetime of things in just one summer. So is, is this a loss leader for you, or are you going to somehow make money off of it? Well, I mean, look, at, at the end of the day, these are, you know, it's not you know, every seat on the airplane. It's, 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 uh, it's available 24 to 48 hours out. And so it's kind of access to what would have been standby travel, if you will. Yeah. Um, if for us, if, if it can build two to three points in load factor, that's great. Um, yes, we don't get anything for it, but they still will buy bags and seats and other things. Um, some don't buy anything. We've got a big chunk of them, probably half of them that are, aren't buying anything. And for those people, that's, that's exactly what it's designed for. But for us, look, the seat was going to go empty anyway. Yeah. So it's, it's a great opportunity for them. Yeah. Terrific. All right, Barry, always great to talk to you. Um, love the ideas, uh, really, and, and I hope hope the industry would move forward on uh, on some kind of reaccommodation plan um, for passengers. It would really, um, I think, to me, the easier you can make it to travel, the more tickets you're going to sell, right? Easy, easier to use your product, that's better. And it's that's a simple better. solution that already exists. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's make it happen. Hey, Great to see you. Thanks very much for doing this. Thanks for having us, Scott. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. Thanks again to Barry Biffle for this important interview. There's a lot to think about and some very smart comments about the state of our industry. Ben, in this week's mailbag, we have a few old items worth noting. We didn't want these developments to slip by without discussion. First, DFW Airport, so important to the nation's transportation system, signed a deal with American to create a new sixth terminal, Terminal F. This was actually in the works for a while and put on hold, slowed down by the pandemic. But now it's back. These may be the most expensive gates in the world, $1.63 billion for just 15 gates. For those keeping score at home or taking Professor Baldanza's quiz, that's $109 million per gate. The deal includes expansion of terminals C and A that American already occupies. And I suppose the hope for other airlines is that American vacates some of the gates it has in terminals D and E 
in order to make room for growth by other airlines. But it looks like the rich get richer. This is a great comment, more than a question, I guess. But it's true. Terminal F is big growth at DFW. And interestingly, you don't see a lot of new runways being poured these days, even in the last couple of decades. But you do see terminal and gate deals. That's because that's the biggest source of constraint for big airports in the U.S. Not enough places to park the planes and operate from. At some point, we're going to need another runway at the biggest airports, but we're not there yet. As to whether or not these Terminal F gates are the most expensive in the world, I'm not sure about that. There are some properties being rebuilt at JFK. Mm. Delta, for example, is spending like $3 billion in JFK, and I don't think they're getting many more than 15 gates. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're getting 18 or 20 or something. But I actually think that's a sign of what new construction at airports really costs. And my guess is it's probably even more expensive if you tried to do this in Los Angeles, New York, or Toronto. Sure, absolutely. I also think it's a reflection of uh, the Terminal F will be uh, designed to handle large airplanes. Um, I think it'll be used for a lot of international flights. Uh, and so you end up with a lot of distance between gates. Um, you know, people have complained about the long walks in airports, uh, and this is probably going to be a great example of that. I hope there are moving sidewalks or some other accommodation. When you add in all the retail that airports want to put in to generate revenue, and there's a benefit to passengers too. Passengers like nice places to eat and drink and uh, by reading material or whatever they, they do at airports, uh, then you end up with long walks. I'm not sure you need a shopping mall in the terminal, um, although a lot of airports would like as much retail as possible. And certainly the gate hold areas, because you're putting more seats on each airplane and the airplanes are getting bigger, um, you're going to have uh, just more distance between gates. So uh, watch out for the long walks. It, it'll be many years before we open Terminal F and, and get to experience it. I'm sure it'll be very nice, uh, but also uh, costly to all travelers at DFW. Well, as someone who's finding it harder to do long walks, I bet there's going to be plenty of moving walkways in that place. Hope so. Hope so. Okay, second item a battle is brewing over airlines operating under Part 135 and 380 certificates that allow the hiring of pilots with only 250 hours for scheduled charter operations instead of the 1,500 hours required for regular commercial airline service. JSX does this and a couple of other small operators. They also don't have to fly from TSA screen terminals they can operate on their own from fixed-based operators, making it more convenient for passengers. Now SkyWest is setting up a new subsidiary, SkyWest Charter, 
that will operate under a 380 certificate. SkyWest is a regional carrier that provides service to big airlines, uh, but SkyWest Charter, the new subsidiary, will only be allowed to carry up to 30 passengers and can't fly under the agreements that SkyWest has with major airlines. The major pilots union, the Airline Pilots Association, and some airlines have started to protest what's going on with scheduled charter. They're asking DOT to clarify rules. JSX is essentially selling scheduled airline service, and I don't think customers understand that it's scheduled charter. As murky as all this is, what's clear is that regional airlines are short on pilots and getting jet time for a 250-hour pilot flying small airplanes would be a help to the industry. It's certainly better experience than doing touch-and-goes in a Cessna 172. But the government needs to figure out if small carriers are exploiting a loophole in regulations or if this is a practice that ought to be endorsed as a solution both to small-town service cutbacks and to the pilot shortage. Great comment. I would lean on to the encourage side of that, but I agree that a clarification of the rules could help. Of the major two differences that you pointed out, Scott, I don't think the 250-hour rule is a problem. And like you said, I think that's a help to the industry, a much better way for younger career pilots to build their hours before they go work for a commercial airline. You know, those 1,500 hours having spent 1,300 of them in a Part 135 carrier would make a lot more sense. Also, and this is me ranting a bit, we have pilots landing big planes in the U.S. all the time with just 250 hours. They work for foreign carriers who still use the 250-hour rule, put the new pilots in an apprentice system with a senior captain, And we allow those planes to land in the U.S. So I think there's a lot more politics in that 1,500 number than there is safety. Now, on the being able to operate from FBOs or fixed base operation, that one does make me a little more nervous, Scott. I am a fan of making sure we know who's getting on our airplanes, no matter what the size is. So maybe regular TSA isn't right for these kind of carriers. But again, a clarification of rules, including how do we ensure that they're safe in terms of who we put on the planes is probably a good thing. Yeah, I think so. And we've seen TSA get creative with uh, remote terminals like the uh, the very high class terminal in Los Angeles, uh, where they'll, they'll send a couple officers over uh, to a remote site uh, to do the screening. It can be done. Uh, obviously, that's expensive. Obviously, you have to get an airport uh, to agree to it. There may be costs involved uh, for the airlines involved. But I, I agree. The, the theory is uh, small airplane doesn't tie. They're not connecting passengers into the regular airline system. So not much of a target. 
Um, but 30 people is 30 people, and, and they should be protected uh, just like everyone else. I do think what really bothers me about the 1,500-hour rule is what it was done essentially in a vacuum. It was done without study. Um, it was done without any accommodation for the impact it was going to have. And I think one of those solutions might be a system where uh, young pilots with 250 hours can get paying jobs so they can have an apartment and a life and and be taxpayers and get really good experience flying in weather, um, dealing with complex uh, airplane systems, learning from the captain sitting next to them. That would all be great than somebody paying $200 an hour or whatever it costs to uh, these days to charter, uh, to, to rent a Cessna 172 and do touch and goes that really have no connection to the kind of flying they'll be doing when they do become commercial pilots. So yeah, it would be a training system. But you know, when I got my license, uh, an airline captain who was a friend said, okay, now you've got a license to learn. Don't ever stop learning. And I really do think it's a license to learn. And every airline pilot, no matter the experience, should always be learning. And certainly putting a 250-hour pilot in the right seat of a 30-seat regional jet, that's a great learning opportunity. And, uh, and we would have a safer system um, if we can make that work. I agree totally, Scott. Really good insight. Well, that's all for Airlines Confidential this week. Have a great week, everyone. And thanks again to Barry Biffle for great insights and for coming on the show. Thanks for listening. We'll have more next week on Airlines Confidential. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.